Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is, is Respect is Professor David Campbell. He is a political science professor at the University of Notre Dame, and he has a specific interest in a phrase that uh, I found interesting when I heard him speak. Uh, it's called civic engagement, and just that has a whole range of things built into it. And I'm looking forward to chatting with him and talking about where are we at in our society dealing with respect for and participation in our political and governmental system. David Campbell, with respect. David, how are you today? I'm good, John. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. I'm looking forward to it. Good. And I am, too, ever since I heard you speak at a a group recently uh, that uh, you talked about this phrase of civic engagement. I thought it was absolutely fascinating the way you you, uh, teased it out. It was great. Now, can I call you Dave? (laughs) By all means. All right. Dave, where are you from originally? Well, I generally try to keep this under wraps with my students at Notre Dame because I teach American politics, but I'll let you and your listeners know that I'm actually uh, a Canadian by birth, Oy. but I've lived in the United States for a long time. Whereabouts in Canada? From a place called Medicine Hat, which is in Alberta. That's on the western side of the country, just north of Montana. Mm-hmm. So... How did you get interested in political life, whether it's Canadian or American political life? What was, what were your interests when you were a kid? Well, I suppose I could describe myself as being somewhat precocious as a child. So I've always been a reader of the newspaper. That's pr- what probably drew me into uh, you know current events in the first place. But um, I was also very fortunate when I was in high school to have social studies teachers who introduced me to the study of politics and sort of the understanding of it. And frankly, I was very fortunate to have social studies teachers who modeled how to disagree with one another, but do so respectfully. So I mm. remember vividly how in my high school, which was relatively small, we just had two social studies teachers. One was on the right, one was on the left, and they regularly would visit each other's classes so that they could have friendly debates about the issues of the day. And that really made an impression on me. It taught me that it really was possible 
to care about an issue and care about a position, but at the same time hear what the other side was saying and be able to talk about it in a civil, respectful way. Now, was this in Canada or the United States at the time? So that was in that was in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, although, like most Canadians, I lived quite close to the U.S. border and, of course, was surrounded by American culture. So, again, as a rather precocious, you know, news-consuming child. I was uh, following American politics from a pretty young age. What was your, what brought you to the States? Well, um, a university. Um, I, I attended Brigham Young University in Utah mm-hmm. and uh, graduated from there and then ended up staying in the U.S. for my graduate training. And along the way, I got married to an American, had children in the U.S., they're American citizens, so um, I'm an adopted son of America. All right, great. Now, you are a professor uh, at uh, Notre Dame? That is correct, of political science. How long have you been there? I am in my 20th year. Oy, holy mackerel. You're a lifer. <laughs> it feels like that. Yeah, I've been through four football coaches. <laughs> All right, there you go. Now, now we're talking real serious business here. So... You talked about the concept of civil, civic engagement, and it was a phrase that either you coined or you put uh, sort of the, the star on to, talk, to begin talking about how we interact with each other uh, on the, in a governmental, a political, and a social community way. Um, how, why don't you explain that, if you could? Sure. No, I should be careful to note, I did not coin the phrase civic engagement. It's in my circles frequently used, and it covers a lot of things actually, but the way I think of it is it's it's meant to describe how people engage publicly, or by engage we mean get involved in their community, whether that community is local or whether it be at the state or national level. That might be through formal channels. You belong to a group or an association, but it might also be less formally, conversations you have with friends and neighbors about public matters. All of that falls under the broad umbrella of what we mean by civic engagements or being involved in civic life. Well, you know, in in the States, we often look at uh, Canada as this a very polite society, and um, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, care for one another. And in the states, we sometimes think of ourselves as kind of rambunctious and not necessarily uh, polite to one another. Is, is that something which is just a, a myth, or uh, is there some reality to that? <laughs> well... I think it is fair to say that uh, public life and politics in particular in Canada is probably a little more genteel than what you find in the United States. But I wouldn't want to overstate that, and that is actually an important point to make because um, you certainly find disagreement, sharp disagreement, uh, north of the border. But politics does work differently in Canada, and one thing that you're less likely to find in Canada than in the U.S. is this – idea that your political opponent is your enemy. Again, I don't want to make it seem as though it's a utopia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody oh. just holds hands and sings kumbaya all the time. But there is a um, there's a different feel to politics in Canada. There are a lot of potential explanations for that. One of them, just a simple one, is the fact that the Canadian 
party system, the political parties, are very different. Um, you have different parties at the provincial level than you have at the national level. And mm -hmm. so to identify with a party in Canada has a very different meaning than it does in the U.S. In the U.S., it's very much an identity. You either are a Republican or you are a Democrat. Well, in Canada, it's more complicated than that because it kind of depends on which level of government you mean. And the parties are often changing. So we've had new parties emerge and old ones disappear. Well, you've got a, in Canada, there's a parliamentary system, which is um, radically different in, in, in many respects than the American uh, tripartite uh, uh, separation of powers with executive, legislative, and judicial, right? Uh, that's correct. So um, loosely speaking, one of the big differences between a parliamentary system and what you have in the U.S. is, as you noted, the um, the, the executive, so think of the prime minister, also sits in the legislative branch. It would be as though the president were also a member of Congress. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that there are not three branches, and it actually doesn't mean that there's not a separation uh, between the branches, but it does work differently than you find mm -hmm. um, in the U.S. Where do we get our interest um, in, in politics uh, and in government and in civic uh, affairs? I'm, I'm now I'm talking about your experience, whether it's in Canada, the United States, um, or whatever, where do we as human beings begin to be aware and get involved in uh, our political systems? Well, um, I have found, and I'm not just speaking of my conjecture here, but from research that I and others have done, that one of the primary explanations is very much consistent with the story I told about how I came to be interested in politics through my experience in school. Um, for many people, it starts when they're young, and that might happen in the home. That could often does. But it can also happen in schools or a combination of the two. And it's often in those early years that people are first introduced to what it means to be part of a democratic society. That can happen in your home where you might participate in the decision-making of home. It might happen in school, also, again, a place where you might feel like you're part of a community and expressing voice. And of course, these are also places, both home and school, where you learn about the political world and your place in it. You might even hear your parents express political opinions and you begin to sort of shape your own views of, well, what does it mean to be involved in politics and what side do I prefer and what sort of policies are the sorts of things that um, that I want to see enacted. So again, a lot of it comes from when you are young. I, in one of your uh, presentations uh, uh, that I uh, reviewed, you talk about another, two more inference in, uh, institutions. One is the churches, uh, that they have an effect in, in <clears throat> bringing people to uh, pay attention to public life. Uh, that's correct. It's actually been a large body of the research that I've done over the course of my career is on how not only schools, but as you said, religious organizations can also introduce people to public life. Uh, that can happen when you're young, but continues to happen over the life course as people are involved in a congregation, whether that be a church or a parish or a mosque or a temple or whatever your particular religious tradition calls its place of worship. And, you know, um, places of worship are arguably unique in the way they can bring people together. They facilitate all sorts of civic activity. So obviously they bring people together for the purpose of worship, but they have lots of other 
impacts on people's lives. It you know gets them involved in volunteering in the community often, and often it just means you 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 meet people you wouldn't otherwise meet because you have this common religious bond. But there might be other things about your background that are very different, and therefore churches are one of the few remaining places where people of different backgrounds can at least potentially come together. You got it. <clears throat> Let me add another one, and I don't know how this fits into your constellation. And that is the media. And we have such a wide range of, today, uh, methods of us becoming aware in the, uh, of, of the world around us and engaging in that world that uh, it seems to me, at least, that uh, uh, this has got to be a, an incentive, um, maybe, hopefully, positively, to get involved. What about the media and effect on people's attention span and interest in, in uh, public life? Well, the media certainly is a factor in this. Um, I will say that among political scientists, there's some debate over how much of, a, of an effect the media has as compared to people who are already civically engaged being the ones who, who choose to consume more media. But we do know that um, one thing that's different today than in the past, that people are able to select media sources that will merely reinforce the views they already have. You know, we've always had, you know, newspapers that lean left and papers that lean right. And there's a little bit of variation on television and maybe a little bit of variation in, on the radio, but, but nothing as dramatic as what we have now. I mean, today you can have two people who live right next to each other in the same street and they can have t a totally different view of what's happening in politics if one watches Fox News and the other watches CNN. Or, um, or really almost anything other than Fox News. So we are, we're at a challenging time when it comes to understanding the role the media has in um, how we understand politics and, and public life. You know, I, start, I was trying to think about this <clears throat> before talking to you, and I, I kind of came up with different stages of people uh, being involved and how they get, how active they become. And I put out the following. It's just see uh, as a check uh, on me. First of all, there's attention. You pay attention to what's going on around you, and then you might engage in voting if you're a, if you're a, a citizen and uh, of the proper age. And then you may develop if you really get involved in a particular cause or individual. Then you might get into advocacy. Uh, where you might uh, get on uh, the media and talk about your views. And then, then there becomes <clears throat> people who involve themselves in the political process directly, though not as candidates, and they, but they help out in campaigns. They stuff envelopes. They make telephone calls. They go door to door. And then finally, the really brave uh, decide to run for office themselves. That's, what, that's sort of the the hierarchy that I see of getting people involved in public life. Does that ring and at all uh, with you at all? Yeah, that's largely consistent with what uh, those of us who study political participation or civic engagement would say. So another way to phrase what you've just described is to think of voting as the gateway drug to other types <laughs> of, uh, of political engagement. Since, uh, you know, voting is obviously the most common way that people um, get involved and, uh, you know, the, Though it's obviously important, it's what it's what determines uh, who's in government. Um, 
your your mention of how uh, starting with the the media is what maybe what is what gets people involved. Um, that's probably true to some extent as well. Although you'd be surprised at how many people are voters, but not necessarily regular consumers of the news. Um, and that doesn't mean they're not uninformed. It just means they learn about politics through other means. We're going to take a break right now. Uh, we're talking to Professor uh, David Campbell, who is a policy, political science professor at the University of Notre Dame. We're talking about civic engagement. Uh, how do we get ourselves uh, into a community? How do we create a community or participate in a community where people pay attention and involve themselves in the, the big public issues of the day. Uh, this is John Smetanka with respect, and we'll be right back. back on With Respect with Professor David Campbell of the University of Notre Dame, his political science professor there. We're talking about how people uh, develop an interest in public life and, and what they do with it. This is John Smutanka. Now, when we broke, Dave, I was, I was ready to raise this subject, and, and uh, I decided I needed a break first. But here it is. Is there, what is the status, the state of political involvement and, and civic engagement today as opposed to, say, 20, 40, 50 years ago? And I assume that you, you and, and, and other uh, political scientists and social scientists have, have done some studies on this. We have. Uh, that's actually been a major theme over the last few decades. Um, the basic story is that by almost any metric, with, with one exception that I'll get to in a moment, but by almost any other metric, um, American civic involvement is much lower today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And one metaphor that perhaps you or your listeners have heard uh, to describe this is the idea that Americans are bowling alone, which is mm. a phrase uh, coined by my dissertation advisor and then co-author, and I ended up writing a book together uh, at Bob Putnam at Harvard. Um, the term bowling alone is a metaphor. turns out bowling is not the only thing we care about, but <laughs> it is a nice way to kind of have it lodged in your brain to remember this idea that uh, Americans are not coming together in the same way that they once did. And it really is true that um, bowling leagues are down, but so basically are every other kind of way that people might come together that you can imagine. That includes clubs, groups, associations, but also just simply getting together face-to-face -face with your neighbors. That has also been in decline now for many years. The one exception to this overall decline in civic engagement is, believe it or not, voter turnout, which had also been plummeting for many years, but in the last 
oh, I'm going to say about a decade or so, has actually rebounded. And so mm. we've seen a dramatic increase in Americans' uh, voter turnout. Now, it still isn't terribly high by global standards. So when I say voter turnout is high in the 2020 presidential election, um, it was about 66% of the eligible electorate voting. So, you know, about two thirds. So that, that's a lot. It's a lot more than it used to be. It used to be only about half if you go back to, say, the mid-1990s. Um, but that's still a lot lower than what you might find in many other countries. So, And that's only presidential elections. Other elections have much lower turnout. And there are all sorts of reasons why we've seen a, a, a rebound, if you will, in voter turnout. One is that the parties have actually just gotten better at mobilizing people. And another reason is simply we are a very polarized country, and so people feel that the stakes are high in an election, and therefore they're more motivated to turn out. And it's not necessarily a good thing to have that high state of polarization at the same time that you have lower levels of other kinds of community or civic engagement, because it means that people are not coming together to meet their neighbors with whom they might disagree politically to learn that, well, they're actually reasonable people and maybe I can learn something from them. Instead, they just have a caricature in their mind of you know, what the other side is like. They're my enemy. How, how much effect did the... Uh, COVID pandemic uh, and the isolation that we went through for X period of time. How, did that affect this uh, process at all? Uh, it certainly did uh, in, a, in a couple of different ways. So, um, you know, every trend that I've just described of clubs, associations, or people just getting together on decline, that, that certainly was happening pre-COVID, but then COVID only accelerated it. And so you can pick almost any kind of organization. And of course, people are less likely to come together when all you have is an online option, it's just not the same. <laughs> and a lot mm -hmm. of groups weren't even doing that, right? So there wasn't much um, going on. Um, and now as we come out of the pandemic, it's an open question whether there will be any recovery or whether we've just seen um, you know, a, a, a dramatic decline that will never be made up. Um, so you know, we will have seen just an acceleration of this uh, previous drop in civic engagement. And of course, the the pandemic and the COVID era also just amplified the sense of political polarization. What started out as a public health crisis that brought both sides together, if you remember, for a brief moment in the spring of 2020, Republicans and Democrats both agreed that COVID was a serious matter and something we should deal with. And even, even Republican governors, even Ron DeSantis uh, actually took pretty dramatic steps to try to curtail the uh, the pandemic. But as it went on, of course, we saw things become more polarized and what turned what, what started out as a, a public health crisis that brought people together ended up pushing them apart. And so now we're continuing to fight the battles over what happened during COVID. And, you know, that's going to be with us for many years to come. You've got a you've got a, uh, um, a thought here about political parties. And, you know, they, they, they mobilize their uh, voters, their adherents uh, uh, better now. And I'm, I'm going to toss out something. I, I ran for um, statewide office a couple of times. And I found that um, <clears throat> the, the process of getting voters out can be positive and it can be really negative. And by th that I mean... Uh, the same process that you described, which is uh, demonization of your opponent, uh, takes uh, 
front and center stage these days. I'm not sure that I'm not going to say that this is uh, a recent phenomenon because that's gone on for many, many years in our country. But uh, it is an annoying process because if you, I mean, I like people and I like to talk to people of different uh, uh, political and social uh, groups and, and interests. But boy, it's, you know, if you don't agree with uh, me on every issue, I'm, <laughs> you're going to rip my heart out. And I, I, don't, I don't like that. Um, and I also found that the system gins up support by making the other people, the other side, look terrible. They pick out somebody that is, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or it's uh, 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 Justice of the Supreme Court or whoever, and that becomes a motivator to get people out and it builds animosity. I'm not sure that's necessarily a, a good thing uh, in any shape or form in uh, in a political system like our own. Well, you're certainly right that um, you know negativity is <laughs> the, the calling card of most political campaigns. Um, there are some exceptions to that, but they're they're fairly rare. And the reality is negative ads work. That's why campaigns use them. And they work in the sense that uh, they can mobilize your own side, but depending on the race, sometimes what they also do is demobilize the other side and mm-hmm. they keep people out of politics because they just get so turned off by it. They get so sick of the negative ads. That's a dilemma. Um, and it's not an easy one to get out of because, as I said, if, if negative ads didn't succeed, campaigns wouldn't use them. So what does that mean? Well, I mean, if you're a voter and you really dislike negative advertising, then voting for those who use the negative ads only perpetuates the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, that's easy to say. That's the sort of thing a professor would say when the typical voter is saying, well, wait a second, what if both sides are using negative ads? And that mm-hmm. is an issue as well. Um, but that's why it's important for individuals to express that view to those who are running for office, say, look, I'm, uh, I'm tired of these ads. Um, I can't guarantee that it's going to make a huge difference, but it doesn't hurt to put that in the, in the ear of someone. And again, there, there are examples of campaigns that are run um, that really do stick with the promise to, to remain positive. Well, I used to think, uh, could wonder about all this, and then I, I finally said, wait a minute, hold on. I'm watching the, the news. I'm watching even the, gra- the glory days of, of um, uh, Walter Cronkite um, where we had objective journalism, which, which seems to be drifting uh, into, the, uh, into the abyss right now because we're, our, we are split on, on, on our networks where we get our news, as you said before. But <coughs> pardon me, I've, I'm getting over a, a bit of a cold here. But I look, I look over to, to uh, look over the system and, and the way it, uh, campaigns are presented on television, and I've I've heard this over and over again at the beginning of a political campaign year. You know, I hear people on television saying, "Oh, now this year, we're going to talk about the serious issues, and we're going to talk about poverty or the environment or war or peace or whatever," and then very soon on, it turns into a race a racetrack, and it is whose horse is ahead, what do the polls look like, which have absolutely nothing to do with the, the, the serious issues. Uh, they don't solve issues. The fact that 
Joe Blow is uh, four points ahead of Sally Smith or verse, vice versa. Uh, wh- wh- how, what's going on here? <laughs> well, um, horse race journalism, as you have aptly described it, is uh, part and parcel of the way uh, the the system works. And frankly, there's probably nothing that can be done about it because um, it's just too tempting for reporters not to, to report on the horse race. So it really falls on the individual voter to try to tune that out, uh, especially because early on in a campaign, most polls are pretty useless. Uh, they get a little more useful as you get closer to election day. But, you know, when a campaign is first starting and you're first learning about a candidate, um, you know, how a candidate is doing in the polls is often not anywhere near a reflection of where they'll end up because they're still introducing themselves to the electorate. So I would encourage people who are trying to follow politics to do their very best to tune out the horse race, even though it's difficult to do. There's a lot of those stories, and frankly, they're they're clickbait. They're tempting. They're <laughs> that, mm-hmm. it's very easy to understand who's ahead and who's behind. That's yeah. an easy yeah. thing, and that's why reporters write so many stories like that. It's harder to explain what this candidate's position is on health care or what this candidate's position is on trade policy. But that's what governing is all about. And so if we're serious about having a democratic society where people are paying attention and holding their elected officials accountable, it's really incumbent on all of us to actually follow that stuff and try to make sense out of it and try to pay attention to it. We're going to take another break right now. We've been talking to Professor David Campbell. He is a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. We've been talking about how we can get people uh, involved in our system, not just our political system, our governmental system, but our community as well, and how we can bring people together as opposed to pushing one another apart. This is John Smutank on With Respect, and we'll be right back. back on With Respect with Professor David Campbell, who is a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. We're talking about the concept of civic participation or uh, civic engagement and how that plays out in the wide range of activities and uh, relationships that we all are a part of. Uh, This is John Smetanka. So, David... Where in where do we start to to straighten out our system or to bring back discussion, to bring back respect, to bring back interest in making the country better, uh, without destroying uh, people who might have a different point of view as to how to make things better. Well, you ask a, it's a tough question. Let me start by noting that uh, America has been through dark days in the past, 
and things have actually gotten better. So it's easy to fall into the narrative that uh, the country's gone to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, if history is our guide, we know that it is actually possible for things to improve. We, you know, over 100 years ago, went through a period very much like this one with you know, deep income inequality with high rates of immigration and the nativism that was triggered by that and a period of tremendous technological disruption. And yet we ended up with the progressive era where many positive reforms came. And, you know, if we look through much of the 20th century, um, things really did look better than we have now. So point number one, there is hope. Second, what can actually be done? Well, if we believe that the problem is that we're all at odds with one another because we don't really know each other. Well, then it would suggest the solution is to find ways for us to come together. And that's not easy to do because, you know, even, even churches, the example I gave of where people might potentially come together, um, well, fewer people are going to church, and the churches themselves have often polarized so that all the conservatives worship in one place and all the liberals worship in another, and so they're not really interacting with one another. So I would point to um, – Going back to the young, schools are actually a place where people can learn to come together and they can actually learn to talk about issues and wrestle with issues, and I would hope that's what schools are doing. Unfortunately, we're in a climate where that's becoming increasingly difficult for teachers to do, but, but that's what the best teachers do. They, they bring students together in a classroom setting and they teach them how to engage with ideas and how to talk with one another and how to do so respectfully and civilly. That doesn't do much for those who aren't in school, but at least it's a start. And maybe if young people are learning that in school, they can actually model that for their parents or grandparents. Wouldn't that be a stunner? Wouldn't it, though? You know, it's, <laughs> when, when I was uh, when I was, was I going to law school, I was in the, 60, in the 1960s, and I remember those days, 60s and into the early 70s, when those of us who were in, in law school began to say, can we survive as a country? Because people were at each other's throats, and uh, the Vietnam War, um, racial issues, um, environmental issues, gender issues, all these things were just tearing us apart. And we began to, I began to wonder, can we survive? Can we survive as a country? And um, lo and behold, we did. And we came to some pretty good times. Uh, we had peace in, in, this, in the Southeast Asia. We had um, an attendance in looking at the environment as something we needed to uh, get involved in. We, have, we had civil rights legislation to deal with, with uh, racial and social problems, and on and on. I, so there is, you're right. There are, despite the rhetoric, despite the fears that people have, I think that we have the potential, the potential of uh, improving our, our, our society. Uh, it's, it's, it can happen. And all we have to do is wave a magic wand called voter engagement or civic engagement or depolarization, right? All of those things, I'm, I'm, I want you to tell me how we're going to solve all these <laughs> uh, but, I, hey, I've got one for you. All right, I heard this on television uh, uh, to show you how the media affect everybody. Uh, there was a piece on one of the news shows that today 
young people are going away from computer dating and, in fact, are saying, oh, you know, it might be better to actually talk to the person that I'm considering dating. And imagine, isn't that a strange thing? Actually face-to-face talking to somebody. Is that a, I mean, is that a trend we can, we can project into the, into the political world? <laughs> well, I was unaware of uh, the turn away from computer dating. I met my wife long before <laughs> such <laughs> things were around. Yeah. I'm guessing that's probably true for you as well. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I do think that there is a recognition, a growing recognition, that um, social media has been especially destructive for our civic bonds in America. Uh, all the trends I was describing actually predate the spread of social media. So we can't really say that, well, you know, social media or even even the internet in general is the culprit, but it certainly hasn't helped and it certainly has uh, accelerated the problem. So if people recognize that as a problem and then say, you know what, rather than try to do everything online, maybe we should do things face-to-face, that would be a real improvement because um, whatever happens online, it's just very different than what happens when people interact with each other face-to-face. You know, there's nothing like a face-to-face relationship to build trust and to allow people to come together and get to know one another. It's just not the same when it's mediated online through an electronic means. Um, And so to the extent that people can turn away from the electronics and meet together face-to-face, yes, that would be an improvement. It's not always easy, and I do want to stress that. It's not like when people get together, everything's fine. Sometimes they actually get quite upset with one another. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. But that's part of the human experience, and that's what we've forgotten how to do in America is how to come together and disagree with each other. And indeed, I I fear that is actually at the root of many of our problems is the inability to just know how to disagree and how to defend one's position without engaging in ad hominem attacks and without just simply disparaging your opponent. You know, it's it's a sad thing that I've I've run across people in my my profession, but also my uh, social life who they tell stories about how they can't go to a family reunion uh, because... Uncle Joe or Aunt Sally have, um, they support candidate X and they are violent about it and they can't see anything else. So when you bring people together, it is not always um, a positive uh, matter, even within a family. And I, so I'm, 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 I guess I'm echoing what you just said. It's, it's important, it's good to have a face-to-face discussion, but it also can be um, a little friction there that uh, uh, exacerbates problems. That's certainly true, and that's why it, it's important that um, people learn. How, it's actually a skill. You have to learn how to engage with those who disagree with you. And I don't want to make it sound like I find this easy. I don't. I have the same kinds of conversations at my family reunion, so it's not <laughs> as though I'm somehow immune yeah. to this. But I can at least recognize that um, unless we learn how to disagree with one another and how to talk across lines of difference, uh, things are never going to get better. And unfortunately, the media environment we were discussing earlier only reinforces this. So if all you, if, all, if the only news you ever consume 
just simply confirms your worldview, it often means you are quite intellectually lazy. You're unable to defend your position. And so when you meet somebody who disagrees with you, especially if they provide a reasoned response, often it leaves people kind of <laughs> unable to respond. They don't know what to say because they haven't <laughs> had to defend those ideas. It's like, yeah. well, what do you mean you disagree with me? This is just the way the world is. And it's like, well, what if, what if you look at it a different way? And then, you know, uh, unless you're willing to do that, unless you're comfortable with that kind of exchange, it can be very, very disorienting. And that's what can lead people to lash out and just engage in, you know, negativity rather than actually trying to talk about an issue. That's an interesting phrase that you, a word that you use. It's lazy. You don't you don't make the effort to open up your mind, or if not your heart, if at least your mind to the possibility that you might learn something of use to yourself and others by listening, active yeah. listening. Well, and I tell my students uh, this as well that you know if you're not able to defend your position or defend your idea, then. Um, it's probably not much of a position yeah. <laughs> and that's something you need to be able to do and to really defend an issue or defend a position. You have to be able to anticipate what the other side might say, which means you have to actually consider what they might say. And you may actually find that there's something to agree with there. Now, again, I don't want to make it sound like all solutions to public policy issues are found smack dab in the middle. Sometimes one side is wrong and one side is right, but if you really do believe that your side is right, you need to be able to in, in, engage with the ideas and think about, okay, why why do I think what I, what I think? You know, when I was a kid, we were my brother and I were raised in a family, a large family, uh, extended family, and whenever they would get together, um, at least in the part that, that we participated in, um, I don't care whether you're four or five or six years old, or you're 90 years old, everybody at the table uh, for dinner, which is, again, something which is, has gone by the wayside in many places, uh, is family dinners. But everybody had, had a right to say whatever they, they thought about a particular problem or issue or relationship. The only rule was you had to be able to, uh, to defend your position. And if you're five years old and you said, uh, I'm, Billy down the street did thus and such, you had to be able to defend when, the per when your, a parent might say or somebody else might say, wait a minute, what did you do to Billy? And so on. <laughs> and but I, I, th I think that it's, I think it's, um, I make it simplistic, and, and, uh, but it did happen in my family, but it taught me to listen to other people. Um, because I might have to defend whatever I was going to say. And being uh, proven wrong is more embarrassing uh, than just keeping your mouth shut. So I, I learned. I, that's what I learned. Uh, I think I would like to see that happen more, uh, more, in, more in our society. Well, and you see, it, it, it comes back to the experiences people have when they were young. You know, I don't make it sound like if you didn't have that experience when you were young, there's no hope for you. But it really is true that if parents think hard about, okay, what, what can I do to help shape my children so that they will be active, informed participants in a democratic society, I really do think it would help. And I, I know that sounds naive, but, you know. For, for many years, people like myself and my circles always pointed to the schools, and we need to improve civic education in the schools. And I, I believe we do, 
But that is a very, very difficult thing to do that's become only more difficult in recent years. But we certainly can speak to parents and say to parents, this is something that we all collectively need to take seriously. And while we still have uh, parental units, um, if, even if it's only one, uh, one parent and one child, that's still a, a, a unit. Uh, that's, best- that's right. And, and actually, I mean, your example is a good one. It, it, this isn't just what a, what a parent might do. It's what families writ large might do. And this might not even be blood relations, but the, you know, the people who are spending the most time with children, these are the ones that are teaching them how to engage with one another. What a, one of the things that you, you hit in your other presentation that I, uh, I listened to, uh, and I think we're touching on now, is what is the, the role of the education system in uh, wherever it is, in private schools, public schools, uh, whatever, charter schools, whatever form of education that we, uh, we have and we, we pay our taxes for or we pay our tuition for, how do we, as outsiders, we're not the ones being educated, we're the ones paying for the education one way or the other and are and we're attentive to the education because they're our kids. So how do we do that? How, is it, I mean, we now have parents and groups uh, going to school boards and screaming and yelling or strongly expressing uh, opinions to the, to the board members, and they take it as screaming and yelling. So, you know, you, what, help me, man. What, what are we going to do? <laughs> well, um, again, I, I, I wish I had... The magic wand to wave and say, "Well, this is what will fix all the problems in our schools." That that doesn't exist. I, I will say that um, even though the arguments you hear in school boards they get a lot of attention, um, it's still the case that most school boards in America have actually not been subjected to that. Um, it's a lot, but it's not most. Mm-hmm. And even where you do find that kind of contention, and you know that's just the nature of an elected school board, um, I still have confidence in what teachers themselves are doing. And I do fear that um, too much of the, the, the narrative in the country has been critical of teachers when really we should be supporting our teachers because um, one only needs to spend time, any time at all with middle school and high school teachers to appreciate that these are people on the front lines of trying to figure out how to get young people to talk to one another and to do so in a respectful, civil way, whether that's in a social studies class or whether it's or you know civics or American government class or whether it's in an English class or you know some other subject. I had an undergraduate here at Notre Dame write a thesis where she went and interviewed um, social studies teachers in another state, and she chose those who were in a purple district that is you know, sort of split politically and then a blue or a democratic district and then one that was in a Republican district. And it was really striking that you know, she was expecting to find that these teachers would say, oh, I never want to talk about any issues in class because I'm afraid the parents will you know, be calling the principal and complaining. And that's not what she found at all. What she found is that most teachers said, no, actually, I'm able to do my job. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, and, you know, they, they acknowledged, yes, I do feel some pressure, and she did meet a few in her interviews who said that, yes, they had actually moved from one district to another because they, they felt political pressure. But that was not the norm. The norm was teachers are doing their jobs, and um, I would hope that parents are supporting them and that 
community members are supporting them and remembering that those who raise the Fawcett School Board meetings generally represent a pretty small minority of, of Americans. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Professor David Campbell, a political science professor at the University of Notre Dame, and his um, great interest is in seeing how we can better produce a civic society where we can have a civic engagement with one another and uh, work together for the betterment of our communities and our countries. Uh, This is John Smutankan with respect, and we will be right back. back and with respect with Professor David Campbell, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame, and is his particular uh, interest, at least what we're talking about today, is how do we engender in our society civic engagement at all of our levels, social, political, uh, whatever. Uh, this is John Smetanka on With Respect. Now, uh, you had an anecdote. Let me tell you an, a small anecdote. I was uh, in uh, it was a locker room at a uh, at the Y when I was going to exercise, and there was a fellow uh, who I'd never seen before uh, sitting on uh, one of the chairs, and he had his head in his hands and just was looked absolutely miserable. So I asked him, "What what's the problem?" And he said he looked at me and. He said, you really want to know? I said, yeah, yeah. Let's, you, know, you look like you're not doing well. He said, I'm a, stu- I'm a school teacher. I teach uh, governmental affairs at a high school. He said, looked at me and he said, why don't people appreciate me and what we try to do? You know, I, I don't get any, seem to get any respect from anybody. Uh, not from the students, not from the, prof- the, the, the uh, administration, and... Not from the parents. Don't, don't they appreciate us? And why don't they appreciate us? Well, that may have been um, a perception that my friend uh, had on that particular day, and I'm sure that there are all of us who've gone through you know, days when nobody appreciates us, whatever we're doing, whether we're working on the, on the factory floor or you know, Congress or, or in a church or wherever it is, that we... You know, we just don't feel like anybody knows how hard we try. But um, it, it seems to be what you're describing uh, is a, a problem that we can all work on. And that is, you say, show respect to those teachers. Show respect to the system. Show respect to your children because you're, you, you want to get them to be uh, the next generation, they're going to pay for your welfare for pity's sakes. If you, if, you don't, if, if you don't build a society of the young who are willing to work uh, and be productive, who's going to pay for your Medicare when you get older? I, I, I use that example 
uh, in my presentations to people. And I, I, I come back to parental involvement. I want to toss that one into the mix. Parental involvement is so important. You started off talking about, about the home as being a, a place where, where it all starts. And I just toss that out and for your thoughts. Well, um, my overall theme here has been the home matters, family matters, um, and certainly parents are a big part of that. If by parent involvement you mean parent involvement in the schools, I certainly endorse that, um, although it should be done in such a way that teachers feel like they have the latitude to do their jobs. So parents should be there in a support capacity, not trying to supplant what teachers are doing. But it's a good thing for parents um, not only to just volunteer for its own sake, but to be in the classroom, to interact with teachers, to actually see what the teachers are doing, because I think that would actually help tamp down many of the pressures and many of the tensions that we are now currently feeling around the country in school board meetings, that if you know, more of those parents who go and complain about what teachers are doing actually understood what teachers are doing and the challenges that they face in the classroom and witness what in my experience are professionals at work doing what they're trained to do, they would actually have a greater respect for the work that they do. Like there's this myth that, you know, teachers are these ideologues or something. And that is just not consistent with what we see in the classroom and what the research shows. Most teachers actually take their jobs very seriously and really do just want to open young minds. And to the extent that they're able to do that and to teach young people to interact with one another, so much the better. When I was in, um, in the, uh, governmental prosecution and uh, uh, governmental work generally, I used to go around and give talks, and I went to schools. And I found that uh, I remember one course I, I gave uh, up in uh, Marquette, Michigan, to a particular high school group, and uh, the professor who was, uh, this is high school kids, put together about 40 or 50 people, in, young kids in a class, and asked me to talk to them. And I thought, Okay, sure, high school kids, what are they going to know? Holy mackerel. They asked good questions. There was interest. They were well-informed on issues that I was surprised that they knew anything about. And they, ha they had enthusiasm. And I loved that. It was it was tremendous experience. And other times I went to schools, and it was like uh, speaking to the, you know, the zombie world. There were just... <laughs> There's no reaction, and I and I'm I taught for many years, um, uh, and all my my uh, relatives at some point uh, taught. Some of my mother taught for 35 years in the Chicago public school system, and so I had a chance to watch the effect from both sides, uh, both uh, watch what happened when mom came home or when. My, my aunts were around, and they talked about education. They do really work hard. They do care for their kids uh, that are in their custody and control and care. I, you know, I have a great deal of respect for teachers. Um, so, and that's just not because I'm speaking to a teacher, and you can't give me a better grade for that. So there you go. <laughs> you know, a few years ago, uh, I had a similar experience here at Notre Dame. We had um, a, a governor of another state come and visit, 
and there was this hand-picked group of students to meet with him and he clearly thought that this was just going to be you know an easy conversation and he would just snow these kids over and instead they raked him over the coals (laughs) 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 they asked him uh tough questions but good questions and did so civilly but i was so proud of them and it did actually <laughs> reinforce this view that you know maybe not all is lost the ki- kids are all right <laughs> well and, and now to, to take the opposite experience there was that that professor out and or somebody came out to speak to a it was at stanford um one of the west coast schools and there was an organized by a teacher by a, a, a part of the administration organized protest uh, to the extent that they shouted the man down. I Now, I don't even know what his views were or what their objection was, but if the person was invited by the school or members of the student body to come in and speak, and and the, the people who uh, came to occupy the room just ripped him apart. And I don't mean in a intellectual way. I mean shouted him down. Now, that is craziness. That is not good. Yeah, so that example that happened at Stanford Law School has now become, you know, a, a galvanizing moment for people who are concerned about free speech on college campuses, and we all should care about that. It's an important issue, um, and I'm not actually going to defend what happened at Stanford Law. That wasn't wasn't a great situation. Um, I will say, however, and this is something that's important to keep in mind, that uh, for every example like that of what happened at Stanford Law School with it was a federal judge actually who was shouted down. Mm. Um, there are thousands more examples of speakers of all different political persuasions and backgrounds who come to campuses all the time and speak, and that doesn't happen. And we should remember that. That yes, there are issues regarding free speech on some campuses, and this is something as a nation we're grappling with. But I have also seen at my own campus and am aware of many other cases of um, quite the opposite of where people can come together and hear someone they disagree with or even, you know, someone they're not sure about. They just come and want to hear what they have to say, and it can happen civilly. So we we should be reminded that it is still possible, even in our polarized times, to have such conversations. They, they do happen. We have a few minutes left, and I'm going to turn this over to you. Are you at the end of the day, an optimist or a pessimist in about how, in whether or not we are going to be, uh, in the future, a society that uh, functions well? Well, I have to say that it's a close call, <laughs> but I'm slightly more optimistic than pessimistic, and I feel like I have to be because if we just succumb to pessimism, then there truly will be no hope. It will just be a downward spiral of despair. I actually teach a course at Notre Dame called Keeping the Republic that is all about the current threats and challenges to American democracy. And I have made a point in that course of ending it on a positive note because I want my students to feel empowered to go out and try to make the world better because as we've both acknowledged in this conversation, America has been through tough times in the past and America has seen, seen things improve. And if we don't keep reminding ourselves of that, then we are just doomed 
to only continue this downward decline, you know, this, this decline in civility and just heightens polarization. So we have to believe it can get better because if we, because there's nobody else, right? There, That's right. <laughs> there is nobody else to come and save the day. <laughs> Either we're going to do it or nobody will. And if we care about the country and if we care about, you know, the, the way our communities function, then we all need to take a hand in this. Left, right, center, blue, red, purple, everyone. Professor David Campbell. Dave, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. I, I agree with you. I am also marginally an optimist, which drives, <laughs> which drives some of my co-counsel uh, co crazy. They say, how can you, you, you just described how the world's going to hell in a handbasket. How can you be optimistic? Because I have to be. Otherwise, I'd just go home and suck my thumb. At any rate, thank you very much for joining us on, on With Respect, and I, I, I wish you the best, and I hope you keep taking your message to the, to the world. This well, is, thank you. I've enjoyed this. Good. This is John Smetanka. We're on With Respect. And remember, our motto, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. Thank <laughs> you.